Hello and welcome to UK Column. My name's Debbie Evans and I'm the nursing correspondent for UK Column. And today I'm delighted to be able to welcome two guests. Um, we're delighted to be able to welcome back Alex Kelly. And for those of you that have seen Alex's previous interview before, it will be linked um, under the description of the video. But Alex very sadly lost her mum, Anthea, um, as a result of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Alex has been fighting for a very long time and also runs the UK CV family bereaved group. And Alex has been looking for ways in which to raise funds for other people to take legal action, which is what she's had to do to reverse the decision of an inquest and a coroner. And when things get really complicated, what do you do? And Alex, bless her, has followed the path down, down the line all the way and found an amazing solicitor, a consultant solicitor, Peter Todd. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome Peter as well to, to the um, UK column. First of all, though, before I introduce Peter a little bit more, I'd like to welcome Alex in and say, Alex, thank you so much for arranging this. And please give us an update of where you are and what, what you're actually trying to achieve and how we can help you today. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Debbie, and thanks for having us on. Um, so I've set up um, the Anthea Kelly Memorial Fund, which is legal support for COVID-19 vaccine injured and bereaved. Um, because as you explained, um, my brother and I and my family were um, fighting to get an inquest for mum um, back in 2021. And it was with Peter's help that that finally happened. A lot of the vaccine injured and bereaved in the community know of Peter and the amazing work he's done. And so I wanted to do something in mum's, um, mum's memory that would benefit others because I've had my truth and it goes an awful long way to helping you. Um, there's a lot of people that I'm dealing with in the communities because uh, I'm part of UKCB family, as you said, but I also um, support the Truth Be Told campaign, which um, is trying to get the media to, to cover us to give us some support or at least speak to us. And we're just not getting anywhere. So with the vaccine injured and bereaved, I'm just seeing more people where my brother and I were almost two years ago before we found Peter and just struggling to navigate an incredibly difficult medical legal world. Where you, you, don't, you don't work in that world, you don't know that world, then why would you know how to go forward? Whether it's a death or it's a, a vaccine injured person who isn't getting the help from their doctors. A lot of the injured are talking about further problems now on top of the injuries they've originally had from the vaccines because they were ignored. So they've got further problems, further issues. So this fund, um, and I know very much this is my mum, my mum's energy and my brother's energy behind this because they, I can't think about anything else. I've just wanted to set this up. Um, and it is so that People who can't afford that legal expertise um, that Peter has, the fund will help. And that is my aim. It's only been going for two weeks and I've already had amazing patrons step up. It's one pound a month. I do have other tiers of five, 10 and 20 on there. Um, I purely put that on because people asked me to. I was in my naivety just going to keep it at a pound. Um, but I've had some amazing support already. Um, and going forward, um, we're doing interviews so that I can obviously get the word out there to people to please, you know, if you can, I appreciate times are incredibly tight right now, but if you can do a pound a month and become a patron, you know, you could really be changing lives of people that they're right on the edge. I've said this before, Debbie, we have suicides in the groups. This is very serious. Um, people taking something that their government and, their, and the medical world told them was safe and their lives are now changed. You know, a lot of these people, particularly the injured, were working people. They were paying the taxes. They can't work a lot of them now. Um, and they really are on the edge. And in terms of the deaths that have gone on and are going on, and okay, this is my opinion, but it's what I'm dealing with in the, in the groups and in the community, they're just being ignored. And so if we can look into something and we can get the patrons on board, 
then that is what I want to do in, in my mum's memory. And as I say, Pete, without Peter, there would have been no inquest. There would have been no inquest and the, the pathologist would not have had the chance to speak up about what his findings were. So I am forever grateful to the work Peter did. I think this is a very good time, Alex, to, to actually say that we are seeing um, a sliding of the vaccine injured from, from the news and we're very keen to keep it at the top of the news. And I think maybe now's a very good time to introduce um, Peter Todd. Um, and thank you so much, Peter, for agreeing to join us. Peter's a consultant solicitor um, working for Scott Moncrief Associates Limited. Um, his expertise is in pretty much everything medical, um, especially challenging the NHS and looking at vaccine injuries. And what I love most, mostly about Peter's page on his website, on Scott Moncrief website, is that the statement is Peter is strongly committed to the principle of access to justice for all, regardless of ability to pay, which I think is, is lovely. And so, Peter, welcome to UK Column. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us. Would you like to give us a little introduction? Sure, sure. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Debbie, for asking me to, to, to talk. Um, uh, I'm a solicitor who uh, is now coming up to like nearly 30 years since I've been qualified. And over the past um, 20 years in particular, I've taken a real interest in cases involving people who have had adverse reactions to vaccines. And um, I've, I've found it's like a really fascinating interesting area of law and, and um, you know I, I started because it became clear to me that in this country in the United Kingdom um, nobody was really getting any compensation for adverse reactions to vaccines that just it just wasn't happening um, however it's pretty established in mainstream science that although generally with vaccines, the benefits are considered by mainstream science to outweigh the risks, that it's always been accepted that there can be adverse reactions to vaccines, just like any medicine. Any medicine involves a balance of risks and benefits, and there can be side effects. And vaccines are not like some special class of uh, medical products that never have any adverse reactions. Um, and um, most developed countries around the world in, in the, from about the late 70s um, to early 80s, most developed countries adopted systems of vaccine injury compensation. In particular, that was brought in in the United States, um, where they have a special vaccine court so I, I just became very interested in this question of why, what, you know, what was it about the United Kingdom that was different that meant that nobody was getting compensation? Because our law on the face of it looks very similar to other countries where, where compensation was available. Um, so I didn't quite understand, like, why, why in this country there was hardly any, hardly any compensation available. And um, I've just basically um, been focusing on trying where, where there's a case that I feel has scientific merit and is supported by, you know, sound science. I've just been focusing on trying to redress a balance that exists because the, the pharmaceutical industry have great legal departments full of great lawyers really well resourced i mean they're so fantastic similarly the government i mean has enormous uh, resources like endless lawyers and people uh, protecting the government's interests um unfortunately for injured uh, people however um, there just isn't the provision um, legal aid for injury cases has been abolished and that means that uh, most cases would have to be funded on a no-win-no-fee basis and 
generally speaking, lawyers in the UK would not run a vaccine case on a no-win, no-fee basis because of the very, very savagely poor success record that any any solicitor in this country would think that it would just be a recipe for bankruptcy to do cases on that basis. Um, but I suppose I, I like to try and sometimes run against the the mainstream current. I, maybe I'm a bit of a maverick. Um, and um, I think you have to be sometimes to do these cases. Um, but what I found is that when you do have a success, um, like we did in Alex's case, um, the victory is all the sweeter, that it is um, a victory of David against Goliath. It is um, all the sweeter. And therefore, for me personally, it's been extremely rewarding work. And I think it's really important. And um, you know, in the context of a pandemic where we've had an unprecedented level of vaccination with um, a very new and untested and unknown vaccine products, and unfortunately, we've had um, a high level of adverse reactions. The need for um, advice, support, going through the inquest process, going through compensation claims is desperately needed. So um, I think um, it's, it's hard for the vaccine injured and bereaved to find um, the committed representation that they need. Um, it's, you know, if you go just to your local firm of solicitors, uh, in the high street, it's likely that after sort of five minutes uh, talking to you, they'll just say, "I'm sorry, we we can't we can't deal with this," and they'll they'll send you away. Um, it's a very it's a very special type of expertise. I think that you need to deal with some of these cases. But um, I think I think um, as as Alex could tell you, um, there there are things that you can do to actually completely transform the situation legally and that's what I, I'm, I'm focusing I'm focusing um, my particular practice on at the moment so dealing with inquests uh, claims for compensation under the vaccine damage payment act and sort of challenging uh, arbitrary refusals um, challenging coroners by judicial review proceedings where they're trying to brush people off and tell them, you know, that um, there's nothing to see here. And, um, you know, potentially taking proceedings against some of the pharmaceutical companies for uh, producing defective products, which are the injured people. Well, number one, I think we love Mavericks at UK Column. So thank you for being a Maverick um, because you've joined a good team. We're, we're all Mavericks here as well. And I think what uh, something else you said, which struck struck me from my own personal experience, too, is that when you are involved with big pharma and you're involved with government, you have got this huge machine, this legal machine. They have these huge legal machines behind them which basically leaves us, the public, pretty much um, stuck between a rock and a hard place. But I noticed that you say that you have received far an increase because you're an experienced um, vaccine um, damage, vaccine injured solicitor. Um, would you say that you've seen a huge increase since this this rollout of the mRNA, particularly, and AstraZeneca? Um, would you say that there was a big increase from the work that you've done before? And, and how busy are you at the moment? We have a statutory compensation scheme um, where if you're, uh, if you're injured by a vaccine, you can apply. It doesn't cost anything to apply. And if, if, you, if they accept that you're... Um, severely disabled as a result of vaccination, then you can receive a fixed statutory payment of £120,000. Now, in, in, a, in a standard year, there are between about 50 and 100 applications a year. And um, 
it's not terribly generous schemes. So the average number of awards is between naught and two awards a year. So it doesn't cost the country very much generally. I think um, since the pandemic, there have been, I think, about um, three and a half thousand applications, and they've already made 33 awards for serious disablement caused by vaccination, according to the latest Freedom of Information request. So that is a many, many fold increase of the number of uh, cases that have been applying and the number of awards that have been made. So that's all uh, related to the pandemic. Peter, why do you think we're not hearing about this? Because it's not in the media anymore. And as Alex has just said, you know, they're worried that they're being swept under the carpet. The MHRA were publishing the figures. We could see the figures. They were huge amounts of figures. And that goes for globally as well with the VAERS data. So why do you think that we're it's being swept under the carpet? Why are we not hearing about these huge increases in figures? Well, at the time of the pandemic and the vaccination campaigns, there was undoubtedly pressure in the media um, not to report um, cases of um, adverse reactions. I know I spoke to many journalists and they would say, well, this is really interesting, Peter. Um, you know, I'd love to do a programme about this. I'd love to feature this. But um, now is not the time because they do not want there to be um, reports about this, which were sort of stirring up concern and therefore uh, uh, causing people to become hesitant about vaccination. So there was a lot of pressure, I think, that was uh, on in the media um, not to report. Um, but I, I think as the as the mass waves of vaccination have ceased, my prediction will be that there will be a sort of an incoming tide of stories that will gradually sort of go higher and higher and there'll be more and more um, reports, um, documentary films will be made um, until until eventually the the reporting was settled down to a more sort of normal basis but i think um it, it was it was a time of great sensitivity and um um it's debatable whether there should be that much manipulation of the media that goes on i think yes i think that's a very i think that's a very good point to make um i think can i First of all, for somebody like Alex, who's suddenly been bereaved, and Alex is looking after many other people who have suddenly been bereaved as well, um, and they're they're told by the doctor um, that the you know condolences are given, etc. What does somebody do if they want to pursue um, a post mortem? an inquest um, maybe they want to request it and they're grieving you know they're already grieving what are their first steps because i know that a lot of people watching this will be saying well yeah we were at the hospital or we discovered um that our, our parents or our loved one had died but we didn't know what to do next we didn't know how to challenge the system we didn't know how to request anything but if the family feel that a post-mortem should be carried out and that they would like an inquest, and the hospitals say no, what do they do? What's their first steps? I think it's completely understandable because um, uh, us as humans, we don't have the death of our close loved ones very often. So this is not something that we regularly experience. So when it happens to you, this is a whole new sort of territory that you get into. Um, and um, the answer to your question is really that people should go and see and talk to the coroner for their area. We have a, a local coroner system. Uh, the, the coroner's jurisdiction is a really ancient one. There's been coroners in this country since at least the 12th century. Um, so it's a very ancient office. And um, that uh, it's, it's an unusual 
uh, court in that most courts in this country are adversarial, but uh, the the coroner's uh, system is is actually inquisitorial, which is which is a different type of court than people are normally used to. But if somebody has concerns about whether somebody died as a result of a medical intervention, whether it was a medical accident or a, a vaccination or something like that, the first thing that they should do is go and talk to the coroner. Um, actually, the coroners do tend to be quite decent people. They are just people like me. Uh, they tend to be lawyers or sometimes occasionally they're doctors. Um, um, they're, they're, they're locally based and it's their job to uh, basically to carry out an investigation into um, why somebody came by their death. And this process of like establishing why somebody died is something that the coroners have set up to do where there is any doubt. And I think that where there is a question about whether a vaccine contributed or caused a death, there is a particular public interest in a thorough investigation being carried out because it's not helpful if we don't know whether or not that was the case. So I, what I would say to, to families, first of all, is go and see the coroner, talk to them. They're a human being. Um, they, they, they should be experienced in their jobs. Sit down and talk to them, tell them all, all about the concerns about what happened. And um, when their loved one then dies, then, uh, it's likely that the coroner will probably start off by opening an investigation, and that may involve um, asking a pathologist to carry out a post-mortem report. And then once the coroner has the post-mortem report, then the coroner will then likely decide, uh, is the evidence that the death is through a, a natural cause, or was there a non-natural factor? such as a vaccine or a medical accident that caused or contributed to the death such that there should be an investigation and uh, an actual inquest held in public. As you've said, Peter, this is a whole new world and all of us, none of us will have ever hopefully entered this world of inquests, coroners, and even something called a judicial review, which I'd like to ask you about as, as well. This is a whole new world. So do you literally mean that we phone up the coroner's office and we make an appointment with the coroner and we go and sit down? Is it that simple that we literally just phone the coroner's office? Yeah, I would, I would go to the coroner's office. It's generally sort of, um, you know, locally based. Um, go and talk to... You, you may be able to talk to the actual coroner themselves, who, who generally is just like a lawyer like me sitting in an office, um, or you'll talk to the, the coroner's officer, who tends to be like an ex-police officer who's used to sort of carrying out investigations on behalf of the, the coroner and sort of acting as the, the coroner's um, investigator. So talk to them and, and tell them your concerns. And... Um, you know, the, the coroner's service are there to try and help. So they will try and help. Um, I think where, where I might come in is where they refuse to help and where a dispute arises between the family and the coroner. Um, because obviously um, there can be a situation where the coroner takes a particular view that, for example, that an inquest is not required or a post-mortem is not required. Um, and the family don't feel that justice has been done, that sufficient investigations have not been carried out, then it may be that um, the family want to then come to me and I can then, you know, consider all of the, the medical evidence and the facts of the case and I might be able to, you know, start off by making representations on their behalf. And if that doesn't work... Um, because, like, as in Alex's cases, case the, the the coroner still refused to listen to me and still said no. Um, you know, not not prepared to to conduct an inquest. Um, it it may be that we can do um, the the next step, which is to actually issue proceedings in the High Court 
against the coroner where we asked the High Court to overturn a decision by the coroner on the basis that it's unlawful that um, there should be an inquest or there should be a post-mortem or, or whatever it is. So um, the, the High Court is there to supervise all public officials and make sure that they conduct their um, their statutory duties in a lawful and proper fashion. Um, legal aid is available um, for those on on low uh, on low incomes. So legal aid could be available to cover um, an action for judicial review, where you can ask the court to actually interfere with decisions made by the coroner. So um, and that threat can sometimes the threat of proceedings can sometimes persuade a coroner to back down as well and and to to allow an investigation to go forward so um it can be sometimes um worth going to see somebody like me to get advice and representation if the your initial discussions with the coroner don't get the outcome that you want peter could you could you for because it it really is it's it's a world that we don't see it's behind closed doors could you just um, very, in simple terms, tell us what can people expect from an inquest if we actually get to the point of an inquest? So a post-mortem's been done. Um, who chooses the pathologist that carries out that post-mortem? And what happens when you actually go to a coroner's inquest? Because it's quite, a, you know, it's an official, a formal a, a formal environment and it can be quite overwhelming for many people can you explain to us what the procedures like and what people should expect at an inquest and what they should expect to to hear possibly and to prepare themselves for yeah uh, an inquest is it's a really unusual um form of proceedings um i always feel like it's a bit of a cross between a church service and a court hearing because there is a real solemnity to an inquest because obviously it it's about um somebody who's who's died and um somebody who's often uh, much loved by by their family and relatives and friends so there's always a great solemnity of an occasion but the the law specifies that actually uh, at an inquest, the coroner is quite limited in what they have to do. So they have to basically uh, identify the deceased. So that the, the deceased has to be identified and the coroner has to determine uh, where they died, uh, when they died and how they came by their death. Um, so the circumstances touching on their death. That, that is the whole remit of an inquest. And um, it's important that the, to, to note that the law actually prevents the coroner from attributing blame to any party. So you can't, it's not there to attribute blame, but it is there to establish the facts about what happened. And it is really the one opportunity that a family will have to really get to the heart of why somebody died what what were the causes of their death and if um if there isn't an inquest you never get that chance to really ask the questions of the the doctors or the pathologists to really understand the reasons so um i think most people although they find it quite an ordeal to go through um, they do realise that actually it's valuable because it was the one opportunity that they had to establish why that their loved one died. And if, if there wasn't an inquest, I think, and there's all, always questions about why a person then died, then that's a really unsatisfactory sort of uncertainty to, 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 to always be there. And certainly from a vaccine injury point of view, um, it is very helpful for there to be an inquest 
because if there isn't an inquest, the imputation is, or the inference is that the death must have been through a natural cause rather than the vaccine being um, a cause, which is clearly a non-natural cause. So if there wasn't an inquest, it's very unlikely, I think, that you will be successful in an application for compensation under the Vaccine Damage Payment Act because the you know the official legal position is that the person died of natural causes rather than because of a vaccine so it's it's quite important for the vaccine injured to fight to have an inquest and to fight that uh, in the verdict of the inquest when it's decided as to why the person died that it includes that the person died because of an adverse reaction to a vaccine so that is actually really important that that's noted down it gives some um, clarity to the family about why that their loved one died and it also puts the family it, it does mean that it's likely that their application for compensation will go through pretty quickly through the, the statutory process because already another court has determined the court, you know, the, the coroner's court, the official court, another court has determined that it was the vaccine, which was a cause of the death. So it's very likely that um, a compensation payment will be made. So it's really important not to be rushed away. And, and uh, throughout the pandemic, I have been consulted by many families who have been concerned that their loved one was vaccinated and that contributed to their loved one dying and yet they've been disappointed that the coroner has not been willing to consider that as a cause and unfortunately um, many doctors many coroners were not aware of for example cases of um, thrombosis and thrombocytopenia from the AstraZeneca vaccine or uh, myocarditis or pericarditis from the mRNA vaccines. They simply weren't aware of that. So they were um, certifying deaths as being from a natural cause, where somebody may have, for example, died of um, a thrombosis, um, you know, 10 days after AstraZeneca, or somebody had a heart attack um, after a, a Pfizer vaccine, for example. They were certifying those as a natural cause, whereas actually there were real serious questions that should have been considered at an inquest as to whether the vaccine was a contributory uh, factor. So over the, over the past uh, 18 months, I have been fighting battles up and down the country on behalf of families um, with coroners where we're actually asking them to review the evidence again and to... Um, look at what is basically an emerging picture of uh, scientific evidence that they may uh, not have been aware of, um, you know, from, say, January 2021, when the AstraZeneca vaccine was, was first in, in mass use. Simply, it was not then widely known or understood that the vaccine was triggering cases of thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. Um, so there has been a look, there has been a looking back now. And actually, there's been many cases where uh, deaths were certified as being just uh, from a, a natural cause. There was no inquest. Coroners have, have since been realising that, uh, you know, uh, we, sh we should have, we should have realised that actually the vaccine was a cause. So it is possible, uh, even after you know, uh, the event um, to go back to the coroner and say, actually, we want this looked at again. Um, and we think that maybe a mistake was made at the time and that this wasn't properly looked at. And, you know, I, I think I, I, I've got a, uh, an inquest happening um, in a couple of in a couple of weeks, which, um, you know, the, the case was all closed off in 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 January 2021. And it was only subsequently that um, it was it, it dawned on everybody concerned that it was actually the AstraZeneca vaccine had had triggered the the thromboses 
which which was actually responsible for the person's death and, and now we have to go back and look at it all again so um there's a lot of there's a lot of these cases i think where um people out there may need to have conversations about whether they need to go back to the coroner and say actually in the light of what we now know about you know, myocarditis or thrombosis or uh, vasculitis, um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, acute allergic reaction, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune encephalitis. I could go on for quite a long time listing conditions um, that actually uh, doctors, pathologists, coroners need to be looking again at those cases in the light of the emerging scientific evidence this is sound this is sound science um and saying actually at the time we didn't really realize that but now we've got more scientific evidence and we realize that actually um we need to we need to review the, the position we need to substitute our initial decision for yes it was contributed to by an adverse reaction to a vaccination I think it's very reassuring to know that um, even if a case is closed and appears closed, then there is a possibility of, of revisiting it. But it takes me into a bit of a sensitive subject. And it's a subject that uh, a few people have asked me um, when they've lost their relatives in that they're told that there, there will be a postmortem or they've requested a postmortem and already that doesn't sit very well with them because of the context of what's happening to their their loved one. But then they worry about if there's going to be an inquest and there's been a post-mortem, will they be able to bury their loved one? Will they be able to have a funeral? Will they be able to say goodbye? What What's the procedure with regards to that? What should people expect? How long does this, this take? And when does a body get released so the family can say goodbye? Generally, the body will be released after the um, post-mortem. So um, the sequence will be the person dies, then the, the post-mortem um, will be carried out. And then after that, the... the um, the body will be released and buried. So having an inquest does not hold up uh, a funeral generally. There are very exceptional cases where a family may be unhappy with a particular uh, pathologist report and may want to ask for a second post-mortem. Um, and in those circumstances, you know, coroners um, are sometimes willing to accept a uh, the family to to arrange a second post mortem that that is possible, um, but I I don't think that um, families should worry that their loved one will not be able to be buried. Um, um, the 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 funeral etc can can happen and the inquest uh, will happen later. So it's not the case that a funeral can't happen until. Um, after an inquest now the funeral the funeral will take place and then the inquest will be later what about um because we have been asked this question before when it has been subject to an inquest what about cremation because we know that doctors are paid a fee for cremation certificates we believe um what's your advice regards to that because families do ask you know should should we choose a burial over a cremation or once our loved ones cremated is that the end of the case there's nothing further that we can do um i know it's not a very pleasant question but it is one that we're being asked and i wondered if you had any advice on that i i have never myself in 30 years had a case of uh, an exhumation and that proving valuable so I don't actually think um, if there was a cremation that that would be something that would concern me at all. Um, yeah, if a family wanted to have a cremation over a burial, then I think that um, I don't see any any issue with that. Um, obviously, the, the natural decomposition processes um, mean that there is very unlikely to be any useful pathologic evidence um, after a while in any event so 
your your chance to to get that is generally right at the uh, shortly after the death, and um, you know once that's done, then the appropriate thing would be for the person to be either buried or cremated in accordance with their wishes. Thank you for that, Peter. Um, also, Alex, um, when she's been talking about the work that you've been doing for her, um, she said to me she never even knew the term judicial review, as many people don't. It was a completely new term to her. Could you explain what a judicial review is and when you might need to use that process? Sure. Um, judicial review is a really, really valuable instrument of every citizen of this country. Um, it's something that we should all know about. Um, you've probably heard like Latin terms like habeas corpus, um, which is sort of let us have the body. Uh, I think it's the Latin for it's it's um, basically uh, if somebody was unlawfully detained, um, you can issue a writ of habeas corpus and it will bring you before a court and uh, the, the detention then has to be justified under the, under the law. And similarly with um, judicial review, it's basically that the High Court is there to supervise uh, public bodies. Um, and uh, there's a Latin maxim, quod rex non debet esse sed sub homine, sed sub deo et lege, which means the king is under no one except God and the law. Okay, that's a very important um, principle that uh, no matter it's the prime minister or, you know, the head of the army, um, nobody is above the law. That's a very fundamental principle of this country that the, that the law is sovereign and nobody is above the law. No matter whether you're the government or a pharmaceutical company, you cannot break the law. And a judicial review is the way that we as citizens um, enforce that. So if we think that our uh, government or uh, anybody is infringing our legal rights, then um, you can um, uh, go to the High Court, make an application, and um, there is a two-stage process. So first of all, you have to ask for permission uh, to have a, a judicial review but actually the test um, that you have to persuade the court is quite a low threshold you just have to show that you've got an arguable case so um, you don't have to show that you will win you just have to show that yeah it's, it's an arguable point if, it, if it's an arguable point then a high court judge sitting in the high court will say yeah okay it's an arguable case we'll give you permission to argue it and then uh, you'll come back um, to court um, with with the state or whoever it is that you're you're seeking to challenge, and the high court is there to basically determine as to whether or not uh, the state is acting unlawfully. And obviously, the uh, the court's there to uphold your your human rights and your legal rights. And often, um, uh, it's it's a very effective way of holding the state and office holders to account. Because if you're a coroner, for example, you have a lot of powers, you have great powers, but you have to use the powers reasonably and lawfully and for the purpose in which they're intended. And you have to make decisions rationally. So in Alex's case, um, we had a coroner who was refusing to hold an inquest. And um, even though we had a post-mortem report, which said that um, the cause of um, death was um, partly due to vaccination. Um, and, you know, we tried and we tried to persuade the coroner. And we asked nicely and repeatedly, um, but the coroner would not uh, agree. So um, if we did not have judicial review, um, we would have just been steamrolled. But um, just by issuing uh, proceedings, we never we never actually needed to actually get to court. Just by issuing and serving proceedings, the coroner immediately capitulated because the coroner knew that we were right and that uh, there had to be an inquest. And um, so judicial review is, is an important uh, tool to uphold 
legal rights. Um, and um, you know, legal aid is still available for it. Um, if you win, you'll get your costs back. Um, so it is something which you can use if you feel that an authority, a government department, um, is is not upholding your legal rights or not acting reasonably or not making a decision which is rational so it's 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 a fundamental way in which the law in this country remains effective and therefore it's really really important it's really important to to uphold and i think it's jealous jealously guarded um, judicial review and that's why it's it's um if judicial review goes and we've got no ability to hold like the state to uh, comply with the law then the rule of law has ceased to exist in this country so it is absolutely fundamental to the rule of law just listening to you i, I think it just highlights you know people in this position who are grieving um who are sad who are frustrated um, and who've got so much on their minds, it's quite clear that people are going to need to seek advice from solicitors, specialist solicitors like you. Now, like the medical world, Peter, I'm always having to signpost patients and, 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 and members of the public to different departments, or you need to see a haematologist, or maybe you need to see a neurologist. And I found the legal the legal um, world is similar. So who do people ask to come and see because there are different departments with different specialities and expertise. If they can't come and see you, who, when they look in the old fashioned, I'm still old fashioned, and they look in the old yellow pages, what kind of solicitor should they be looking for with what qualifications? It's what we call public and administrative law. Um, so, uh, most solicitors, if they practice in the area, will have um, a, a website which makes clear that this is an area of their practice. So um, uh, the, um, the, the High Court used to be very London centric uh, in the UK, but actually recently there's been um, a move to try and uh, move the administrative court out into the region. So you will find um uh centers of administrative justice throughout the uk so um uh, you probably will find them in the major uh cities so you know if if you if you live in a sort of a uh, a very rural community um with a, a small local firm of solicitors it's probably unlikely that you would find the right sort of specialist there but if you if you say you lived in the northwest of england if you went to manchester for example there's undoubtedly firms there that would have that specialism or leeds or um bristol or you know all, all of the big um uh centers um obviously particularly london is is where um there there is that specialism um, but but it does exist outside London, but probably not in in small local areas, small local rural towns. I don't think you would find it there. Um, you know, you might find conveyances, or you might find you know family lawyers or uh, magistrates called criminal lawyers in 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 local towns. But you probably wouldn't find the um, uh, people doing judicial review where you'll find those mainly in London and and the major cities. Peter, we've concentrated a lot today, quite rightly, on uh, the bereaved and what people should expect with regards to a, um, seeing a coroner and going to an inquest. But we also know that you do an awful lot of work with the living, um, with those that are vaccine injured. Um, and likewise, these are people that are generally very sick um, and trying to find some help, some medical help to make them feel better. And often they're struggling, uh, trying to find that help. And then they're having to navigate their way through the whole vaccine damage payment scheme and having to navigate uh, phone calls and forms. 
how can you help the vaccine injured? Because um, I know that you have a lot, but what can they expect when they come and, and seek your help? You know, you don't have to have a solicitor act for you if you're making an application for compensation under the statutory scheme. Um, so um, it is quite possible to fill out the application form yourself and send it off to the NHS Business Services Authority who now administer the scheme and there's no fee for applying and I have known many many people who have applied successfully in person without getting any legal advice. Um, so uh, it's, it's not a complicated form. Um, having said that I do think that um, it can help for a solicitor such as me to prepare the form. Um, if I'm honest, um, and I look at the form when it's um, been drafted by um, lay clients, I <laughs> I sort of think, um, well, that that was never going to work um, because that they've not really, uh, you know, included a detailed supporting statement. Um, um, generally speaking, there will only be like two or three sentences. And um, I think um, it's there's an opportunity lost there to make lots of really salient points to persuade. So I, I do think I, you know, I can um, assist. So um, you know, people do frequently come to see me, and I say, okay, well, you've got a choice. You could either do it yourself, um, or you could um, pay me to do it. And uh, sometimes like uh, an hour or two of my time can like speed through an application. Um, and similarly, if they are refused, they can come back to me and we can sort of sit down together. We can review their application. We can review the decision that's been made and um, I can advise them. And, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, listen, there's no realistic prospect of you ever succeeding with this case because of X, Y and Z. Um, and I think it does help people if they can hear it and understand, you know, the reasons why it's not going to be successful. On the other hand, I might say, oh, no, this this decision is just absolutely diabolical. I mean, some of the decisions that are made are, you know, really tragically bad. Um, and therefore, I can help um, draft a, a, a request for reconsideration. Or um, if you if they if they won't change change their mind on reconsideration, then there is a process where you can appeal to an independent tribunal. So um, if if there's a case that um, I believe that there is a reasonable prospect of success in a tribunal then um, I have quite often um, agreed to to do that on a on a no win no fee basis and the good thing about the tribunal is you can appeal to a tribunal and they are completely independent it'll just be a sort of a legal chairperson plus two um, doctors and if, if you lose the appeal if you don't persuade them you're not ordered to pay costs or anything so they just dismiss your your case um, so you are entitled to have a, a day in court. And um, I do think people should should have that day in court. You know, if they if they uh, honestly believe that they have a serious uh, disablement from a vaccine, um, it's definitely worth going and arguing your case. I find it like a really fascinating day. I mean, it, it often involves really interesting you know, principles of science, of uh, neurology, epidemiology, immunology. Um, so it's it's um, it's really interesting, and um, um, you know, I think uh, often often I, I've won, and it's um, it's great to win if you've been refused and you've and, and you've won. I mean, it's 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 um, it means a lot to somebody to have their their severe disablement um, officially recognised as having been, you know, what the cause of that disablement is. You know, it's 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 not a small matter just to have that official recognition. 
And even though that you only get £120,000, which is not at all adequate to cover severe disablement, it does you know, take anybody quite a lot of time to save up £120,000 of taxpayer money. So it's not, it's not a wholly negligible amount, and therefore it is worth um, pursuing, I think. I think one of the questions that we always get asked with regards to vaccine damage is, um, somebody that's got a vaccine injury is generally asked to prove or, or to say that they're 60%, they have a 60% disability. Um, I, I've always struggled with this because if someone's 59% disabled or someone's 61% disabled, how do you determine that? Unfortunately, our, our statutory scheme is really crap. I mean, it's so crap. I mean, that's, it's just the worst law ever i mean really if you if you sort of left a four-year-old together with some paint pots they could come up with a better scheme than that we currently have in this country um but basically what they did with the legislation is they bolted onto the legislation the industrial injuries compensation scale so uh the dwp have had this scale of compensation for a long long time it goes back to the days when people generally sort of worked down the mines um, and in factories and um, they would quite often suffer physical sort of crushing injuries due to poor health and safety so and they would not get any uh, industrial compensation because of the fact that um, their employers would disappear or whatever so I think I think the trade unions and the labour movement probably pressured to bring in this industrial injuries compensation scheme. And, and there's a scale of physical injury that goes from 1%, the most trivial sort of physical injury, up to 100%. And um, originally, when, when the Vaccine Damage Payment Act came in, you had to be 80% on the scale to qualify. And that's because really it was focused on compensating babies who had um, severe brain injury from the whooping cough vaccine in the in the 70s but um in 2000 the the then labor government changed the scheme so that they reduced it so that you only had to get to the point of 60 percent on the scale to qualify and so 60 percent on the scale there's, there's there's two injuries um so um one is loss of a hand and the other one is loss of a leg below the knee um, typically those two injuries are really quite different because like uh, so it's like it's like uh ridiculous that they're, that they're given the same amount um so loss of a hand in a human is quite disabling these days loss of a leg below the knee isn't actually that disabling um because like with a prosthetic you would be able to live you know you're able to live a, a pretty normal life it doesn't have any you know, you don't have to take any medication, you can drive a car, you can work, you can run, you can walk, um, you know, you're not cognitively affected at all. So actually, and it's important that people understand this, that the 60% on the scale is not a high level, okay? It, even though that it's severe disablement, okay, it's not actually severe disablement. Um, because what, what you have to do in the case of a vaccine injury compensation claim, you have to basically look at the total disablement that the person has. And then you have to basically compare that to uh, the, the, the level of disablement that somebody might have if they'd lost a leg below the knee. And you have to uh, make an assessment about whether it's at least as bad as that. I've actually found that if you can get them to accept that the vaccine was the cause of the disablement, then I have rarely failed to persuade them ultimately that um, the injury is insufficiently serious. Um, so I, I don't actually think it's, it's such a high level. And um, I do think it's always worth arguing the case. So in a case where somebody, for example, is taking regular medication uh, or unable to drive uh, or has like uh, cognitive uh, uh, difficulties um, I, I think you can generally establish that um, that injury is actually worse than the injury that's at 60% on the scale so I think that should 
it's quite important. I, I like to explain this to people because it's quite important that they understand that. So, because a lot of people think, oh, 60% means I've got to be at least like paralyzed below the arms or something like that. Well, no, no that's, that's completely, that's completely beyond 60%. That's probably about 180% or something like that. So it's not actually such a high level. And generally speaking, if you're assiduous and you keep going and you get as far as the tribunal, you, you probably will just about um, persuade them that actually it is 60%. So it's worth to keep going. Peter, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I know you're a very busy gentleman and, um, and I'm looking at the time now. But I, I think today's interview with you and the information has been incredibly valuable and to get a glimpse into your world um, is is absolutely fascinating and I can't thank Alex enough and we're going to come back to Alex in a minute but before I before I do hand back over to Alex I'd really like to ask you if there's anything that you would like to say on a final word because um, I'm hoping very much that we'll be able to hook up again and we'll be able to speak to you again because this clearly is a huge subject and it's a subject that I don't know any members of the public that know behind the closed doors of the the legal world, especially inquests and how coroners work. So I would really love to think that you would agree to come back and talk to us again some more because the, the, the information that you've given us has been absolutely fascinating and the time that you've given us is incredibly valuable. Is there anything uh, that you would like to say on a final word before I do hand back over to to Alex for the final word? If somebody is watching this and if um, they have a similar issue or know somebody who has, then um, you know they're very uh, welcome to um, get in touch with me and I will try and help them as much as I possibly can. And um, it may be that if somebody cares about it, and they want to help people, then the uh, the charity which um, Alex is setting up, it may be that maybe that they just want to subscribe and give um, a pound a month. And that's something that they can do for very little money practically to actually help people. So I, I definitely would recommend uh, Alex's um, a memorial to her mother. And I think that's a fantastic response that she has had um to actually um uh, put in place an opportunity for people um who might be in a similar situation to her and her family where they're being brushed off to actually be supported and to enable them to to get justice and the recognition that that they that they need it's a very it's a very very worthwhile cause so you know, I'm I'm always um, ready to try and do my best to help anybody. So, you know, if you Google me like Peter Todd Solicitor, um, you'll find me, and you can uh, email me or or subscribe to um, Alex's charity. That would be something really positive that you could do. And the other thing I would say is go and see your MP um, and talk to them because I do honestly believe that um, if we don't sort of lobby for change politically, then nothing will change. And it's really important, like if somebody has had an experience like Alex, it's really important that their MP knows about it, that they go and talk to them so they know it's real. And I think only by doing that will we actually be able to persuade for there to be sort of real change. And the, the law, um, the statutory scheme, I, I said it was crap. Um, we need we need to change it. We need to reform it. We need to make it more human. Um, like like you said, Debbie, the the burden of proof is on the injured party, whereas in in the USA, the burden of proof is actually on the state to prove that it wasn't the vaccine, and that they have quite a generous system in that close courts are always given in favour of the patient. And I think that that's the right that's the right approach. We should be generous. And um, we can afford, as a as a wealthy country, we can afford to support people who are in that situation. So um, I do think that we need to sort of engage with with MPs, and they need to hear the stories. They need to hear the family stories of how people have been affected. It's only then that we'll actually see real real change. Um, I think I think real change is is actually quite possible. 
but we don't we won't get any change if people don't sort of go and engage or, or try and you know, bring change about well fortunately all of our audience um are very proactive and i know that they will they will take this on board because you're right obviously changes have to be made but you know i think a lot of people that are watching this will be very relieved to have have seen that there are people like you who are there to help them and it's just a matter of knowing where to find people like you so for anybody watching don't worry we'll put all of peter's details on the little article um, beneath this video um, and thank you so much peter we are so so grateful and and i'm just going to hand back very briefly if i may to to alex and alex i'm so sorry because i know that this is still incredibly raw for you you didn't just lose your mum, you lost your brother as well. And through all of this, um, you've brought to the UK column Peter, who's just incredible, and thank you so much. But more to the point, your mum's memorial and what you're doing in order to, to gather some funds. And, and in fact, you're almost setting up your very own legal aid service, aren't you, for for people that are in a similar position that can't afford to see Peter. So I want to thank you both so much for today's interview because I think it's been incredibly helpful and incredibly useful. And I'd like to encourage everybody to share it wherever they can, the information, and to consider becoming a patron. All the details will be in the article beneath the video. So on that note, Alex, I would like as ever to give you the final word and to thank you so much for your bravery, your courage, your determination and your love and your kindness when you've been organising all of this. So Alex, it's over to you for the last word and thank you. Thank you, Debbie. And thanks to Peter for his time because it is so valuable and it's great that people will be able to hear what he said today. I mean, you just just that alone is 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 well information is power so thank you to him as well um but yes my mum's um memorial fund um it's her way of helping now for the vaccine in jam bereaved um i've had my truth and it goes an awful long way to helping um it's helped me to move forward somewhat in my life and um i was sort of trying to say earlier that my brother knew before he died that Peter had secured an inquest and that brought him a lot of peace. So that information for people is crucial, whether it's good news or not, at least you know where you stand legally. And that is what we want to support with the, with the, with the fund. Um, um, getting somebody like Peter on board is just crucial. I, you, who knows how to navigate the medical world legally? I certainly didn't. Um, so I'm forever grateful to him. Um, and yes, it is for the vaccine injured and bereaved. Um, you may think a pound is nothing, but every pound will count. And, um, you know, we need the help for the vaccine injured and the vaccine bereaved now, not in five, ten years time when the government decide to get their act together. And um, if you can't um, contribute, I appreciate times are tight. Please share the platform because you will reach people that I can't. Um, and also people will be able to hear of Peter and be able to um, uh, share the platform as well. Social media has been amazing and they will also know who to contact if they themselves are injured or bereaved. Um, so even just sharing it is, is massively important, but every single pound counts. And thank you to those that have already started. Uh, we already have patrons on board, so thank you very much. And thank you, UK Column, for, for giving us a platform.